Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2013 Pasadena Gospel Truth Rally. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 5, and tonight I want to share just some really, really simple things with you. The book of Romans is Paul's masterpiece on grace. If you don't, if Romans isn't one of your favorite books in the Bible, you don't understand grace. Some of you might think, well, that's quite a statement, but I believe it. I mean, this, this and Hebrews and Galatians are the strongest New Testament books on grace. And Romans is one of the least understood books. You know, I heard a man say back when I was just getting started in the Lord, this was 44, 45 years ago. And I heard a man say that if you could ever understand the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, it would revolutionize your life. And I just felt like that was God speaking to me. And I started studying it. And to be honest, the book of Romans was just confusing to me. And it's not because Romans is confusing. It's because I had traditions. Religion goes against the book of Romans. Our modern day religion in the United States is against what is taught in the book of Romans. And traditions and doctrines of men make the word of God of no effect. Mark chapter seven, verse 13. And so what was happening is my religious teaching clouded this. And it took me 15 years of studying before I began to start understanding the book of Romans. And I'm still growing. I hadn't got it all worked out, but I I can truthfully say now that this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is awesome. And you need to get these truths because if you ever get the truths in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, it will literally revolutionize your life. In Romans chapter one, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And today the word gospel is a word that is applied to anything to do with the Christian religion. People will stand up there and preach and say, repent or else, turn or burn, you're going to hell. And then they'll say, that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. It's true that there is a heaven and there is a hell and that we have to repent of our sins and receive salvation. And if we do, don't, we'll go to hell. That's, it's true. That's a true statement, but it's not the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And even more specific than that, I read a commentary that said that the word that was translated gospel in the New Testament was such a rare word. It was an obscure word that is, we only have two instances of that word being used outside of the Bible in all of the Greek literature that we have. It was hardly ever used because it means more than just good news. It, it's more like it's nearly too good to be true news. It's just over the top. This is something that is unbelievable. And it was hardly ever used because in life, there isn't anything that's nearly too good to be true news, amen, until Jesus came along. But when Jesus came along, what he did, we started using the term gospel. Today, it's got a religious connotation that it just means anything to do with Christianity, but that's not true. When you tell people you're going to hell, that is not nearly too good to be true news. And it says in Romans 1, 16, it's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. The word salvation there does not just mean forgiveness of sins. It includes forgiveness of sins, but it also includes healing. It also includes prosperity and it includes deliverance. The word sozo, that's what it means. 
And again, see, religion has limited the focus and we've taken away some of the power by our traditions. And people will say, it's God's will for you to be forgiven of your sins and you're saved, but you're stuck until you go to heaven. And we're just, you know, a poor wayfaring pilgrim of trudging through this world below. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Further along, we'll know all about it. When we all get to heaven, what a day that will be. But we just struggle in this life. That is wrong. That is not what the word says. In Galatians chapter one, verse four, it says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil world. Not just the one to come but the present evil world. You, he told us to pray in Matthew chapter six, I believe it's around verse nine or 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We aren't supposed to wait until heaven to have heaven. Now it is gonna be in a blast in heaven. I'm not trying to diminish heaven, but I'm saying you don't have to just struggle and go through life sick. You know, I prayed with 50 people back there tonight and people were just, I mean, struggling. They had 15 and 20 different things wrong in their body. And I just asked one of them, I said, why did you let this happen? Why do you let, the, why do you let this happen? And they looked at me like, why well, didn't let it happen? I don't have anything to do with whether I get sick. That's a person that doesn't understand that God delivered us from this present evil world that we can have heaven here on this earth and they just go through life passive like I don't have any control over this. That's not true. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. And sickness is from the devil. You do not have to be sick. Thank you for that one. That's right. You know, at the rate I'm going, I'm never going to get to Romans chapter five. (laughs) Let's just skip over there. Amen. If I don't skip over there, I'm not going to do this. Let's go over to Romans chapter five. So he's been talking about the gospel, the good news. The good news is that although you deserve to go to hell, although all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, that God placed our judgment upon Jesus. And we now have relationship with God without us earning it, without us deserving it. It's a gift. And all we've got to do is believe and receive, or if we doubt, we do without That's the gospel is that it's not based on your performance. It's something that Jesus did and you just accept it. You receive it. You don't make it happen. Boy, that's awesome. And so in Romans chapter five, again, I'm gonna have to skip down to verse eight or I'll never make to where I'm wanting to go. In verse eight, it says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, this verse is also often taken out of context and people just use this verse to show a person that hasn't accepted the Lord yet that God loves them. And they say, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And that's true. And that's an appropriate thing to say. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but in context, this is not the point that he's making. He's not trying to point out how God loves sinners. He was talking to believers And he was trying to convince believers that if you could accept God loving you before you got born again, 
then much more does he love you now. That was the point he was trying to make. This was just a step along the way towards another point. So let's read it like that and read the next verse. It'll show you this. In Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse nine is the point that he's making. He's trying to convince believers that if you could accept God's love while you were a sinner, much more does God love you now. Much more. You know, it would have been wonderful if he'd have just said he loves you the same as he did before you got born again because he loved you so much that he sent his son and died for you. That would be awesome to think that God loved us as much. To think that he loves us more is awesome. To think that he loves us much more is incomprehensible. How could God love us more than he loved us when he sent his son to die for our sins? And the reason he's doing this is because religion has come along and said, God loves the sinner. But once you become a Christian, boy, God is tough on you. I've actually heard it said before that, you know what? You don't correct your neighbor's children. You correct your own children. That once you get in the family, boy, God is going to hold you to a higher standard. He's going to punish you. He's going to reject you. He's going to chastise you. And many people, whether it's said in these words or not, most Christians believe that God loves the sinner more than he loves the saint. Some of you are thinking that's not true. Well, let me just illustrate this. If a, if a person was in here tonight who was drunk, and if you have any relationship with the Lord at all, if this person was a lost person, and if you were talking to them or sitting next to them, did you know that most Christians would go up to a drunk, to an alcoholic, to a doper, or you know whatever the deal is, and you would extend mercy to them? And say, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God could set you free? You don't have to live like this. There's a better life. You could be born again. You could accept the Lord. And most Christians will extend mercy towards a person who doesn't know the Lord and is living in sin. And you will give them mercy and grace and you will tell them about the goodness of God. But let that person accept the Lord in this service, get born again and come back tomorrow drunk. And many of you who would have shared the goodness of God and said, oh, God loves you. If they're a Christian and they come in drunk, there's many of you in here that would say, well, how dare you do that? You're the righteousness of God. God's angry at you. God's going to get you. Sickness could come upon you. God's going to judge you. And you start preaching the law and rejection to him. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. Some of you are thinking, who would do that? Most of the people in here. Well, it's wrong. They shouldn't do it. Anyway, I'm going to answer some of these things. Just keep that thought, but I'm going to try and answer some of this tonight. But this is making the opposite point. If you could accept that God loved you, you know, when you got born again, let me just say it this way. When you got born again, how much had you been fasting? and praying and studying the word and paying your tithes and going to church. There may have been some of you in here who were already religious and doing some of those things, but you know, the vast majority of you were living in adultery 
You were into pornography. You lied, you stole, you did things. You, you just were living a terrible life. And here you were with no goodness, no righteousness to your name. And God somehow or another revealed himself to you, convicted you that you needed him and showed you that he loved you and wanted to forgive you. And you came to the Lord with no goodness, no righteousness. You hadn't done anything good. Everything you were doing was wrong. And you just cried out, oh God, save me. And boom, you received the greatest miracle that anybody could receive. And that is being born again, becoming a new creature. And you didn't have... You didn't have any fasting, any prayer, any good works to your name. And you received the greatest miracle that you could ever receive. Now, here you are so many years later and you've been studying the word and praying and going to church and paying your tithes and doing all of these things. And yet you can't get your headache healed because you know that you don't deserve it. You haven't been seeking God hard enough and your heart condemns you and God's not going to move in your life. I've heard people say, God won't use a dirty vessel. I want you to know God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to use. Amen. We're all in varying stages of just being dirty. How, how holy were you? How good were you when you got born again? The answer is you weren't any good. All of us had sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody deserves salvation. You received it as a gift. But after we get saved, people think, well, I got it by grace back then. It was mercy. But now that I'm born again, I've got to earn God's favor in my life. And church comes along. And again, I'm not against church. I'm just against religion. There are good churches and there's bad churches. But religion has come along and instilled in people that now that you're born again, you got to start fasting and pray. You got to pay your tithes. You got to go to church. You got to do this, 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 and this, and this. And there's many of you that, man, when you first got born again, you just fell in love with God because you had been a whoremonger. You'd been doing anything and everything. And God forgave you. And it was so awesome to think that God just loved you in spite of all of your sin. And then you went to church (laughs) and they started saying, if you don't come to church on Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday night and do this, you can't be blessed. And you said, well, I thought God forgave me of all my sin. Well, he did up until then, but now you got to toe the mark and you got to live holy. And if you don't live holy, God won't move in your life. Colossians chapter two, verse six says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. That means the same way that you receive salvation is the same way you receive healing, prosperity, deliverance, joy, peace. How did you get born again? You didn't point at your goodness. You look to Jesus. You know, if a person comes forward, we're going to give an invitation tonight. And if a person comes forward for salvation and says, I want to be born again, And if I had a word of knowledge and God spoke to me and says, you've committed adultery in the last week. And if I had a word of knowledge and pointed out one of their sins, if they heard the gospel, that wouldn't keep them from being born again. They'd say, that's the reason I need this. Jesus has forgiven my sins. And that's the reason, you know, it says over in uh, Romans chapter four, since we're right here, let me just show this to you. In Romans chapter four, verse five, it says, but to him that worketh not, 
but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. There's a lot in that verse, but it says God justifies. The word justified means to declare free from the guilt and penalty of sin. A layman's definition of the word is just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified just as if I'd never sinned. You can remember that. It, you're just free from sin. And it says he justifies the ungodly. If you're godly, you can't be justified. He only justifies ungodly people. If you're righteous, you can't receive righteousness as a gift. God only saves people that are lost. And if a person thinks, oh, I'm so good, I don't need total salvation. God, if you could just, you know, I'm, I've made a 98 on my test. I am nearly perfect. If you could just make up the difference, that would be fine. You go to hell because you do not trust completely in Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you are trusting in Jesus plus your goodness, you've polluted him. You've destroyed him. The only type of people that God justifies are ungodly people. And somebody in here might think, well, I'm not ungodly. It says Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Whether you know it or not, you may think you're better than somebody else because you compare yourself among yourself and measure yourself by yourselves. The Bible says that's not wise. And you may think you're good compared to me, but compared to Jesus, which is the only standard God is going to use, you've sinned and come short and you need a savior. And unless you are willing to let go of your self-righteousness and humble yourself and receive forgiveness as a free gift, you can't be born again. God only justifies the ungodly. So that's how you got saved. You came. And if, if I had a word of knowledge that you'd committed adultery, And if you understood the gospel, that it's not based on what you do. It's not your good outweighing your bad. It's just whether or not you've received salvation that Jesus purchased. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus paid for all of your sins. And if you humble yourself and receive what Jesus did for you as a gift, then you can be saved. But if you try and maintain your own goodness, you go to hell because your goodness is insufficient. You have to receive it. So that's the way that you received it. And it says Colossians 2, 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. You receive salvation, not based on your goodness, but based on what Jesus did for you. It should be the same thing, but it's not with most people because again, religion starts teaching them that now that you're saved, you better start praying. You better do this. You better do this, this, this. And they start putting down all of the rules and you come up short and your own conscience condemns you and makes you feel like that. Well, I know now why God hadn't moved in my life. I hadn't been reading the Bible enough. I hadn't prayed enough. I hadn't gone to church enough. I hadn't paid my tithes. God can't move in my life. If that was true, you wouldn't have ever gotten saved. You got saved without deserving it. And the reason you got saved is because you put your faith in what Jesus did. But after you get born again and go into religion, it makes you start putting your faith in what you have done. Some of you think, well, man, I've never heard this, obviously. 
You know, in our prayer meeting and in our prayer lines, I've had thousands and thousands of people come up and I start to lay hands on them and they say, I just don't understand why God hadn't healed me. I fasted, I prayed, I study the word, I pay my tithes, I go to church, I'm doing everything I know to do. And they just told me why God hadn't healed them. Because they never one time talked about Jesus has healed me. I know it's his goodness. I know it's not based on what I do, but instead they start pointing to what they do. And they think that when you live good, then you can cash in. It's like if you live good enough, you get a star or something that you can cash in for one answered prayer. And you barter with God and you trade by God. I've done this. Now you do this. That's not the grace. That's not the gospel. What you are doing is promoting yourself and it's mercy that God doesn't give you what you deserve. If God gave you what you deserve, every one of us would go to hell. But the gospel is you don't get what you deserve. You get what Jesus did and all you have to do is believe and receive. It's based completely upon him. And this is the point that he's trying to get across in Romans chapter five. If you can believe that God loved you while you were yet a sinner, you were living in sin. You weren't living holy. You didn't deserve it. And yet you receive salvation. If God loves the sinner that much, much more, much more much more. How can you love somebody more than laying down your life and dying for them and taking their punishment? But he loves us even more than that. Now that we've accepted him, God's love for you is off the charts, but we don't let God love us. You know, here's a statement that I could probably spend 30 minutes or more trying to explain. I'm just going to say it quickly but God is to you what you think he is. Now that's an amazing statement right there because God is who he is regardless of what you think. You may not think that he provides miracles today. You may not think God's a good God. You may think all kinds of wrong things about God and it doesn't change who God is. God is who he is regardless of what you think. But as far as your experience goes, you will experience God only to the degree that you renew your mind and think about it. It says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse seven, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In Romans chapter 12, verse two, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I could go on and on. Your thinking determines how God works in your life. In second Peter chapter one, verse four, it says, according as his divine power, or this is verse three, I think, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Well, what pertains unto life and godliness? Healing, joy, prosperity, deliverance, marriage, success, and any, anything that comes in your life, all things that pertain unto life and godliness come through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. If you've got wrong knowledge, you're going to have wrong believing. Your faith is based on the way you think. And again, most of us have been taught that God moves in our life proportional to our performance. And because of that, 
you don't perform perfectly. And here's a newsflash. You're never going to perform perfectly. You're going to continue to mess up until the day you die. Some of you don't believe that. You can get better and you can improve. You can sin less and you can seek God more, but you're still flesh. And it doesn't matter if you're USDA choice flesh, you're still flesh, amen. And your flesh is going to mess up and you are never going to be perfect. And you cannot receive from God as long as you are trying to do it in your own self. You just have to receive it as a gift. And most people don't believe this. And so they think God moves in their life proportional to their performance and your performance is never going to be perfect. And therefore your thoughts will not let God love you. You will not let the goodness of God flow in your life because you don't feel worthy. And the truth is you aren't worthy in yourself. Just in your actions, you aren't worthy. But the good news is the gospel, it's not based on you. It's not based on your actions. It's not based on your holiness. It's based on what Jesus did for you. And that's the gospel. So if God loved you enough while you were a sinner that he died for you, much, much more now does he love you. If you could come before the Lord having committed adultery the night before and receive the greatest miracle of all, then you could come to God as a believer with sin in your life and still receive. I know some of you right there, just your, your religious circuits blue. It's like I tripped a breaker right there. It's like, you can't receive from God if you got sin in your life. Well, you better hope that you can because you've always got sin in your life. The Bible says to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin. Sin is not only when you go out and transgress and do something wrong, but it says if you know to do good and don't do it, you're in sin. The Bible says that every husband is supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. There's not a man in here that does that perfectly. You may, you may love her better than some others. You may love your wife better than most people, but I guarantee you compared to Jesus love, there's not a person in here that hopefully you aren't arrogant enough to think that you are as good as Jesus (laughs) as loving your mate. And it says that the wife is supposed to reverence her husband. There's none of you women that have done that. You might do it more than somebody else and you might do it better than you've done it in the past, but you don't reverence Christ the way that the church is supposed to reverence Christ, which is what you're commanded to do. So sin is not only what we do that's wrong. Sin is what we should be doing that we're failing to do. And every one of us fails to do the right things. And so there's always something wrong. If you're going to wait until you feel like you are without sin, And then, man, God, I can receive from you. That's the reason you've never received. Your own conscience is going to condemn you. We, none of us are perfect. None of us. So this is a critical point that you understand that if God loved you enough while you were yet a sinner to die for you, 
How much more does he love you now? If God would move in your life and give you the greatest miracle that you have ever had in your life when you were still living in sin, then he would move in your life as a believer with sin in your life. And I know some people still struggle with this. Am I, let me just, man, if I could talk fast enough, I'd really like to get into Romans chapter six. It answers all of these questions, but I'm not making much progress. But I'm not saying that you should sin. I'm not encouraging sin, but I'm saying it doesn't affect God's love for you. God loved you when you were a sinner and he died for you. And now that you're a saint, he loves you even more. But does that mean that we just go live in sin? God forbid. No, that's not what that means. If you live in sin, you're stupid. (laughs) If you never go to church again, you're just absolutely stupid. But you know what? God loves you. You don't have to go to church to have God love you. If you never went to church again, did you know that God's love for you would not fluctuate? God loves you and there's not anything you can do about it. You can't do something to make him love you more and you can't do anything to make him love you less. If you never go to church again, he'll love you exactly the same, but you're stupid. Because the Bible says that we need to exhort one another daily while it is called a day, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If Satan can separate you and isolate you, then you lose the benefit of your brothers and sisters. You aren't going to hear the truth that you hear in church if you sit home. Even if you listen to Christian television and stuff, there's a lot of junk on Christian television. And you need a body of believers. You need things. So... God loves you, even if you don't go to church, but you're stupid if you don't go to church. I'm saying God loves you, stupid, but quit being stupid. Amen. Do what's right. Use your head for something besides a hat rack. Amen. Think. Don't go live in sin. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay, keep you longer than you want to stay. You do not want sin. But God loves you in spite of your sin, just like he did before you got born again. And did you know, if you could believe that, if you wouldn't let your sin separate you from the love of God, then that love would so consume your life that you would live holier accidentally than you've ever lived on purpose before. (laughs) Holiness is a fruit and not a root of salvation. Holiness is the byproduct. If you ever understood what I'm trying to say about how much God loves you, it would just captivate you. You've never had anybody love you the way God loves you. Most people's love is very conditional. Some of you know that very well. You married somebody and they swore until death do you part and then they saw you without your makeup on and they... You know, the man who was the hunk and the captain of the football team got the Chester drawers disease. That's where your chest is done dropped down into your drawers. Amen. 
And all of a sudden, the wife just, I think I've lost my love. Well, you never did love them. You just were sucking all of the life out of them that you could get. You, they were beautiful. They were handsome. And so that you were using them. And all of a sudden, as they get older, things change and you, I just don't feel love anymore. And so anyway, somebody leaves you and it's all conditional. You've got to perform. You've got to do everything just right. And if you don't do this, they'll leave you. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Nobody's ever loved you the way that Jesus loves you. And I tell you, if you could understand what I was, what I'm saying and really embrace it, you would serve God with all of your heart. You'd give up bubble gum if you thought that it would please him. You'd do anything for somebody who loves you that much. The love of Christ. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's verse 15. The love of Christ constrains us. Very few Christians are constrained by the love of Christ. They are constrained trying to get God to love them. But we shouldn't be doing holy acts in order to get God to love us. God just loves us because we've accepted Jesus. He extended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He just loves you. You don't have to do something to get him to love you. And if you could just receive the love of God, then holiness would be the byproduct, the fruit of having relationship with God. But most of religion is preaching you've got to do these things in order to have relationship with God. God's not pleased with you until you do all of these things. Man, I wish I could preach last night's message. I preached a great message on that last night. But anyway, it's faith that makes you accepted with God. So he goes on to say in verse 10, here's, here's the same thought that was separated in verses eight and nine. And sometimes people isolate that verse eight and just talk about how God loves sinners and miss the whole point that he's making. Well, the, both of the thoughts are put together in verse 10. He says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is the point that he's making. If you could accept God's love so much that it reconciled you to God, the word reconciled means to make friendly again or to bring into harmony or into agreement. You know, you reconcile a bank statement. Here's your record of what you've got. Here's the bank's record and you have to reconcile them. You have to get them into agreement. When you have a guitar, you reconcile them. You get them into tune so that they aren't out of tune. They're reconciled to each other. The word reconcile means to make friendly. God made us friendly while we were yet sinners. Now much more should we be the friend of God. And yet I find a lot of people that when they first come to the Lord and they get forgiven of their sins and it's just nearly too good to be true that I've been living in sin for decade after decade and instantly I'm just forgiven. And they are so thankful. I mean, there's people that the grass is greener, the air is better, everything is awesome. They just fall in love with God until they go to church. And have religion start preaching, oh yeah, you got saved by grace, but now you better do this, this, and this. And all of a sudden, they, they, we even have um, comparison. People talk about, well, you're on a honeymoon period, but you know what? The honeymoon's going to be over soon. 
grace is over. Now you're going to have to start towing the mark. And unless you do this and this and this, it won't work. That's wrong. Man, it ought to get sweeter as the days go by. Every day with Jesus ought to be sweeter than the day before. And it would be if we didn't have religion telling us that it's all based on our performance. And so this is what he's talking about. We've been reconciled, made friendly unto God in verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. You know, I could be spending hours on each one of these verses. This this is so powerful. Everything in here is different than what most of religion in America preaches today. But the word atonement right here is a compound word, Greek word. And anyway, it means the exchange. That is literally what this means. You look it up. It's a word, kata, I can't even pronounce it. But anyway, it, it means uh, exchange. And so we have received an exchange. An exchange is when you give somebody something and they give you something back. You know what we gave God? Our sin, our failure. And he gave us back righteousness. We were made righteous, not through what we do, but through what was done for us. And we traded in our sin and got back the holiness, the righteousness, and the purity of Jesus. Man, that is a great exchange. That is a good exchange. Nobody else will give you this kind of an exchange. You know, if you want to take your gold in and exchange it for money, I guarantee you, they're gonna, you're going to have to give a lot to get a lot. But with God, we give him our sins and our failures and he gives us back his righteousness. The word righteous, you know, you can go into a detailed explanation on it, but just for a layman's definition, it means uh, just right standing with God. You're now in right standing. You're holy in his sight. And I wished I had about five days to say something right here and then I could go on. I'm just going to say this quickly. You need to get that teaching on spirit, soul, and body. This would change your life. But people say, I'm not righteous because you go look in the mirror and you see problems, you see zits, you see bags, you see bulges, you see baldness, you see whatever, and you think this is righteous, this is holy. And then you search your emotions and you think, man, I'm mad, I'm upset, I've got unforgiveness in my heart. I can't see righteousness. But the key is that it's your spirit that got born again. And John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You don't come before God in your physical body and your actions. You don't come before him in your mind and in your emotions. But there is another part of you, the spirit. And when you got born again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says you became a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things became new. It didn't say all things are becoming new. Some of the translations might say that, but the Bible, the King James, amen. I'm not a King James only guy, but I do believe that 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if you're in Christ, old things have passed away. All things are become new, not are becoming new. It's already done. 
That's not true in your physical body. It's not true in your mind and in your emotions. If your body was fat before it got saved, it'll still be fat after it gets saved. Your body doesn't instantly change. If you were dumb before you got saved, you're still going to be dumb after you get saved. Your mind doesn't instantly change. But in your spirit, right here is the Bible says in John chapter seven, Jesus said, uh, it says, this spake he of the spirit, which they that believed upon him would receive. And he had just said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. So this spake he of the spirit. So the Bible says that the spirit is here in your belly. Some of you look like you got more of the spirit than others, but it's not true. Amen. In the spirit, if you're born again, you are a brand new creation and you are righteous and you're holy. And you can't see it in the mirror and you can't feel it in your emotions. But the truth is you are as holy as you can get. You're righteous, you're pure. You've received an exchange. You know, people look at their actions and think that this made me a sinner. This made me do that. Oh man, there is so much to say. Look at the very next verse. In verse 11, it says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sin. Do you understand what that's saying? Sin entered into the world through one man. It's not many men, not millions of people. One man made us all sinners. Your actions did not make you a sinner. You were born a sinner. You were born with a sin nature that was separated from God. And it's this sin nature, your old dead spirit that made you sin. You know, I I was recently with some people who had a dog and And this dog, they were trying to house train it and it wasn't working very well and it smelled bad. And they were just beside them. I don't understand what's going on. And I said, well, that dog acts just like a dog. (laughs) Now I admit that you can train a dog, but you know what? It's the nature of a dog to poop wherever it wants to poop. That's just the way the dogs are. They aren't people. I know some of you are going to be shocked at this because you think your dog is a person, but I'm telling you, they're dogs. And you know what? A dog will lick himself right in front of anybody. He doesn't care who's looking. And they say, oh, you shouldn't do that. But you know what? They act just like dogs. And some of you are embarrassed sometimes by your dog, the way they act and the things that they'll do. And You just can't believe they did that. But you know why they did it? Because they're a dog. And dogs don't live by the same standards as people. You know why you sinned? Because you're a sinner. You were born a sinner. It's your nature to sin. It's not your actions that made you you a sinner. It's your sin nature that made you live that way. 
And through upbringing and environment and condemnation, you can limit your amount of sin actions, but it doesn't change your nature. You know, I've lived holier than nearly any person in here. I'll be turning 64 in April and I have never used a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. 64 years. Some of you are thinking coffee. (laughs) Are you saying that coffee and booze are the same thing? No, you can drink coffee. I'm just saying I lived a holy life. You got a scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. Mark 16, 18 says, you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. I'm not against drinking coffee. I'm just saying I've lived a separated life. There are very few people that have lived as holy as I am, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. I couldn't trust in myself. And so religion, I was so afraid. I used to have dreams when I was a kid that I had smoked a cigarette and that I got caught and they turned me into the police and the police turned me over to my mother and I woke up in hell, burning in hell because I smoked a cigarette. Some of you think I'm joking, but that is not a joke. I had that dream at least once or twice a year for 10 years. It was a reoccurring nightmare that I had smoked a cigarette. Well, in the church I was brought up in, we didn't talk about mixed swimming. We called it mixed bathing. That sounded worse. You couldn't go in a swimming pool where a girl was. Boys couldn't swim with girls. We couldn't dance. If you danced, you were of the devil. When Elvis came out, that was of the devil. I never listened to Elvis. That was worldly music. I didn't do that stuff. Amen. I know some of you think, boy, you're weird. Well, that's what religion will do to you. I didn't go out and commit some of the sins that y'all did, but you know what? I would have gone to hell the exact same as a person who's an adulterer, a liar, a thief, because I had a sin nature. And even though it restrained the amount of sin, did you know that the lust was always there? In some ways, I was more bound to lust and to things like that than people who went out and did things. I was a sinner and I sinned. I didn't do some of the, you know, the big 10, but I sinned (laughs) and I did things wrong. I was selfish and I did, I got angry and bitter and didn't forgive and did all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and anyway, religion can make you change your actions, but it can't change your nature. See, this is why you must be born again. You were born a sinner. You were born separated from God. It says over in Ephesians chapter two, I believe it's verse one or two. It says that you were by nature a child of wrath, even as others, that we had the spirit of disobedience working in our heart. Every lost person is by nature united to the devil. You are a child of the devil. We were born with a sin nature separated from God. And Jesus came and took all of our sin nature, not just our individual actions of sins, plural, but he took our sin, singular. Did you know in the book of Romans, there are something like, I forget the exact number, but it's 38 or 
48 times that the word sin singular is used. And it's not talking about what you do. It's talking about the sin nature that makes you do what you do. And Jesus took your sin, your sin nature and suffered your rejection and punishment. And then when you come to him and confess him as Lord, he takes that dead spirit away. You don't have a sin nature anymore. Your sin nature is gone and you now have a new nature. And some people think, well, man, I'm not sure I got a new nature because I still am struggling with some of the exact same things. The difference is your nature has been changed, but you, it's like a computer. You were programmed. Your mind was programmed how to be selfish, how to do this, how to do that. And we need to reprogram ourselves. That's what the Bible calls the renewing of our mind. Hebrews chapter, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse two, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You got to change the way you think. Your spirit has been changed. Your nature now is to love God. This is why some of you used to go out and commit adultery and not think a thing about it. You were just into it. And now that you're born again, you see an ad on television and you lust in your heart and you feel condemned over it. And you say, God, what's wrong with me? That's a testimony to the fact that your nature's changed. You used to enjoy that stuff. Now you may still have some of the same lust. You may still go and drink sometimes. You might do something wrong, but now you feel terrible about what you used to feel good about because God changed your nature. But you've got to change your thinking now. And you do that by the word of God. And most Christians haven't changed their thinking. They, first of all, don't know that their nature's changed. But see, you receive the atonement. You receive this exchange. And it's in your spirit that you're changed. Your spirit is now as pure and holy as Jesus is. And somebody says, how could that be? It's because you only know yourself in the physical. You know, some of you, you've seen me now and you could describe to a person what I look like. You could tell them about my personality and my sense of humor and stuff like that. You can describe my body and you can describe my soul, but you had never seen my spirit. Most people don't understand that there is a spirit inside of them and they don't relate to people spirit to spirit. They deal with the flesh. And if a person is of a different color, if they don't smell good, if they don't look good or whatever, we relate to all of that. But God is a spirit and God sees us in the spirit. And in the spirit, he sees you differently than you see yourself. He sees you differently than you see other people. In the spirit, you're awesome. In the spirit, you are now righteous. You are reconciled unto God. You're holy. Man, I was wanting to get way into Romans chapter six and I'm not going very well. But I just can't skip over these things. These are things that most people haven't heard. Let me say this, that I was raised with this condemnation attitude, thinking that I had to do everything right to please God. And the reason I lived holy wasn't in thanksgiving for what God had given me, but I lived holy trying to earn God's power. That's totally wrong. Your motive for what you do is more important than what you do. I did the right things. I lived holy by most people's standards, but I did it trusting in my goodness, thinking now, God, will you move in my life? And that, that sin of self-righteousness 
and looking at your own goodness instead of looking at Jesus is the only sin that stops God. That's worse than homosexuality, than adultery, than murder, than stealing is the sin of thinking you deserve it based on your goodness. God can overlook any of those other sins. You can see Jesus going into the publicans and the sinners and harlots and he forgave them and said this woman loved much. And he talked about the harlots and had harlots that followed him around, Mary Magdalene and others. And he was friends with sinners. The only people Jesus ever rebuked were the people that trusted in their own goodness and thought that they deserved things from God because they were holy. And man, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you vipers, you whited sepulchers, you hypocrites. The only people he ever rebuked were people who trusted in their own goodness. People who admitted that they were a sinner and humbled themselves. Man, Jesus welcomed them with open arms. That's awesome. And so anyway, I, I was raised with this performance-based thing. I did the right things, but I did it trusting in myself. And I had it ground in me that regardless of how good I was, all of my righteousness is like filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64, I believe verse six. And there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter three, verse 10. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three, and all of this stuff. And I just was consumed with my unrighteousness. And yet I was trying to be holy and earn God's favor. And it was an unobtainable goal. And I set myself up for constant condemnation and stuff. And this is where most religious people live. You might be in varying stages of it, but this is where most religious people live is in some form of condemnation because they are looking on the outside instead of looking on the inside what Jesus exchanged and gave us. And so anyway, I uh, had a friend that took me to one of these Bible studies. And this is, uh, uh, this is back when I was first getting started and I didn't have my mind renewed a bunch. And anyway, I came out of a denomination that a woman couldn't teach a man anything. Women had to keep silent in the church. You couldn't let a woman teach and so I went to this Bible study in a person's house and the person leading the Bible study was a woman. So I was immediately offended. I thought, man, this woman hadn't got a thing to teach me. How could I learn anything from a woman? So I went in with a chip on my shoulder. And then there were hippies in there. And this is back in the 60s. And I was raised in the Baptist church. And if your hair ever touched your collar, you went directly to hell. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You just go straight to hell. You couldn't be saved and have your hair longer than your collar. And I went in and there were hippies everywhere, hair all the way down to their, their waist. And they stunk. And they were wearing tie-dyed shirts. And uh, man, I, was, I thought I was being very generous by not just blasting them all and even staying in the same room with them. And so they started into this Bible study and I was doing okay until one of those hippies says, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when he said that, I just had all I could take, amen. That was it. And I stood up and I said, 
There is none righteous. No, not one. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. And I said it just like that. You sinner. (laughs) And I blasted these hippies and this woman. And then I sat down. And you know what? Instead of them retaliating and being angry, they operated in love. They showed kindness and respect to me. And they said, you know, we used to think this. And for every one scripture I quoted, they quoted 10 scriptures saying they were righteous. And it just knocked me off balance. I left there that day thinking, God, how could this be? And I felt like I had failed to represent him properly because they out, they out talked me. They won the argument. And so I went home and I bought a Young's Analytical Concordance and I looked up every time in the Bible, the word righteous, righteousness, righteousness says was used. There's thousands of them. And I wrote every one out. I fasted for a whole week, studied 15 hours a day and looked up every verse in the Bible, wrote them out, categorized them, studied it. And at the end of that week, I was convinced that I was righteous because of what Jesus did and not what I did. But even though I saw it and it's in the Bible and I wished I had more time, I could prove it to you. There are hundreds, thousands of scriptures. Even though I saw it, I couldn't embrace it because it was so bred into me that I was born a sinner. I was born separated from God. How could I ever claim to be righteous this side of heaven. And these verses are what finally pushed me over the edge. I was reading and I came to these verses. I'm going to skip down here and read some of these verses in Romans chapter five. It says in verse 15, but not as the offense. Now remember it had said up there in verse um, 11, that there we've received the atonement, which means the exchange that we gave him our sin and we became his righteousness. And that's what it's talking about. So in verse 15, but not as the offense, in other words, in the opposite direction, it's the same point, but now it's reversed. It says not as the offense, so also is the free gift for if through the offense of one, many be made, I mean, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of, of, by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. Now see in verse 15, I understood the first part of that very well, that by the offense of one, by Adam, I became a sinner and I, I was dead, separated from God because of what Adam did. I accepted that. I was taught that. This is saying that there's a flip side to the coin. Just like if you pull a coin out of your pocket, if there's a heads, then there's got to be a tails. And if it's a true coin, the tails is just as real as the head. They look opposite, but they're just a different way of looking at the same coin. If If I accepted that I became a sinner and became dead through Adam, this is saying I have to accept that I am now made alive through Christ. Did I deserve to be a sinner through Adam? No, I was born that way. Do I deserve to be righteous? No, but I was born again that way. I was just born again that way. And then in the next verse, it says, and not as it was by one that sins, so is the gift. 
for the judgment was by one to condemnation. It wasn't my own sin. It was what Adam did that condemned me. But the, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. In the same way that I accept, accepted condemnation through just being a person born separated from God, when I get born again, I am now justified. If I accept one of those truths, I, to be honest, I've got to accept the other truth. Then in the next verse, it says, uh, for if by one's man's offense, death reigned by one much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Death reigned in my life through Adam. I had accepted that. I had to accept that now that I'm born again, life reigns in my spirit. Man, that's awesome. And then it says it again in verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Man, what an awesome statement that is. And it says it again in the next verse. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. I'm righteous, not because of what I do, but what Jesus did for me. That's the exchange. See this whole thing, five different times it says it. That in the same way that this happened in the negative and we all became sinners, condemned, death reigned and all of this. Now in the same way, but in the opposite direction, we now have received justification and life and reconciliation with God and all of these things. And it says it five different times. And I remember that day just reading this and saying, God, I still don't feel it. But if I'm going to be honest, there is no way around this. If you admit that you have been a sinner and separated from God because of what Adam did and you were born separated from God, then you must, to be consistent, to keep from being a hypocrite, you have to accept that you are now born again righteous in right standing with God and your spirit is as clean and pure as Jesus is because it's his spirit that was sent into your heart crying, Abba, Father. You know, I saw this and I remember just being overwhelmed. I was about, uh, I think I was 20 years old and I was just overwhelmed. And I walked out into the backyard and sat on my back porch and I had this dog that was uh, three-fourths German shepherd and one-fourth chow. I bought this dog for my mother when I went into the army to protect her. And this was a huge, mean-looking dog. It, I named it Honey because it's uh, fur looked like honey. It was that color. And so I named this dog Honey, but uh, it was this mean looking big dog that I got for a watchdog. But uh, the person that I got it from used to beat it with a trace chain. And because of it, this dog looked tough. And if, you know, you walk by, it would run and jump and the, the whole fence would lean and sway. But if you would have opened up the gate, that dog would have hurt itself trying to get away from you. 
And so this dog, I I was sitting on the back porch just thinking about this. And here comes my dog running across the yard. Nick gets up about four or five feet away from me. And this happened every single time. It would run, get up close, and then it would lay down on its side and whimper and scoot up to you, afraid that you were going to hit it. And I'd never hit hit this dog. And anyway, I was sitting there watching this and I, you know, it's hard to lose your temper when your dog's name is Honey. But I stood up and I said, honey, just one time, I would like you to come up and jump on me like a normal dog and not act like I'm going to beat you. I said, I've never beaten you. Everybody thinks I'm mean to you. And I was just reading this dog, the riot act and say, just, just act like I like you sometime. Act like I'm not going to beat you. And as I was reading this dog, all of its list of things, the Lord spoke to me and he says, Andrew, that's exactly the way I feel about you. He says, every time you approach me, you come in. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I approach you so humbly and oh God, I know I've sinned and I know I'm not deserving. And I just start whining and scooting up there, hoping that he doesn't hit me. And he said, just one time, I'd like you to come and jump in my lap and say, Abba Father, and believe that you're righteous. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And it's just your religious doctrine that makes the word of none effect that is keeping you from experiencing the love of God. You don't need to tarry and fast and spend all night praying, asking for God to pour his love out. He's already done it. What you need to do is get rid of all of the religious junk that has made his love conditional upon your performance and start accepting it as a free gift and just start ministering to yourself and thanking him that he loves you. Even if you don't feel it, thank him because it's true. And you start praising him. And if you would let God, if you would just start praising him, father, I don't deserve anything, but you love me. You think I'm awesome. I'm righteous. I'm justified. You carried my picture in your wallet. You got an eight by 10 of me on your mantle in heaven. That God, you love me. Some of you think, well, I'd never say things like that. That's the reason that you don't really experience the love of God. God loves us, but see, we've been taught to think that it's conditional. And once you get saved, now the standard just goes up to where you got to be perfect. Used to, you could receive salvation after going out and being drunk all night. But now, if you don't read 10 chapters in a day, the Lord's liable to let you die of cancer because you didn't read your daily Bible readings. It's inconsistent. As we receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, we should continue to walk in him the same way. And we need to just start receiving this love. And you have to retrain yourself. And with me, it wasn't easy because it was ground into me. Even though I saw this stuff, it wasn't like I, you know, that day I just, all of a sudden it was over and I never had a problem. I still have to renew my mind. I still catch myself getting into mistakes and still going back to that because, you know, there's nobody that loves us like Jesus. This world system, you aren't going to find anybody who treats you unconditional the way that Jesus treats you. And so it's easy to fall back into this performance thing. The policeman, if you leave here and start speeding and he stops you and you say, hey, I just learned the good news, man. The nearly too good to be true news that God loves me in spite of what I do. If I go hundred miles an hour, he loves me the same. That cop still give you a ticket. 
He's going to deal with you based on performance, not based on who you are in the spirit. And if you break the law enough, you can go to jail. And you know what? God will love you right in jail. And you can have a wonderful time, but you will have consequences living in jail. Your mate doesn't treat you by grace. They don't treat you based on who you are in the spirit. They're going to deal with you based on performance. You treat them badly and you're going to hurt your marriage. And the same thing at work. If you go into your work next Monday, you know, and say, Hey, I learned the gospel and it's not based on my performance. And so, you know what? I may or may not show up and I may or may not work. And I'll think I'll just do what I want to and praise God. I'm loved of God anyway. And it'll all be true, but you could lose your job with that kind of a thing. So because all of the world treats us based on performance, if you aren't careful, this performance mentality will creep back in. You have to fight against this constantly because God is the only one that treats you unconditionally based on whether or not you accept Jesus, not based on your own performance. You know, let me give one last example and I'll quit. But I was uh, pastoring in Pritchett, Colorado. We saw a man raised from the dead. It was a little town of 144 people. There was 12 people in the church and we saw a man raised from the dead. The sheriff was there. And when this guy came back to life and was raised from the dead, the news went everywhere. And we started having over a hundred come to this little tiny church. There was only 144 people in the whole town. And we had a hundred coming to church from all over. And because of this, so many people were coming by for prayer and they were wanting me to minister to them that I started early in the morning and went to late at night praying with people and, and ministering the word to them. But I, it had been days without me praying personally or studying the word because I was so busy ministering to people. So I knew I needed to be studying. I needed to fill myself back up. So I just made a commitment that I was going to fast and pray all that day. And uh, so that was my commitment. Well, before I even got out of bed, I had people knocking on the door and they were bringing people that wanted prayer. And so I had to get up and I prayed, but I prayed for people. I didn't pray and just worship the Lord. And then at lunchtime, I had a guy come by that I'd been witnessing to and he wanted to take me out to lunch. And I thought he could get born. He, he acted like he wanted to get born again. And I thought, man, today could be his day and I can't turn him down and tell him I'm not going to eat. So I went out with him. And since I didn't have breakfast, I was hungry and I ate twice as much as I normally did. And so that night I was driving 45 miles to go to a Bible study in another town and teach this Bible study. And I felt so badly because I had broken every promise I made to the Lord. I didn't fast. I ate more than I normally did. I prayed. The only time I opened my Bible was to share it with other people. I'd broken all of my commitments. And as I was driving over there, I had this scripture come back about all liars will have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. It's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. And I was just, it was pitiful. And I was crying and saying, Oh God, how could you ever use me? How could you speak through me and touch people? I broke every commitment I made. And I was just crying as I was driving over to this place. And I was saying, Oh God, somehow you've got to use me. And I thought, Lord, you know, uh, if you won't do it for me, if, if I've messed up, what about the people do it because you love the people don't punish those people because of what I did. And I started praying and asking God to use me because he loved the people. 
And I didn't feel any peace about it. I didn't feel any faith rising. So I just kept praying. And finally, as I was going along, I said, oh God, just do it because of who Jesus is. And when I said that, the Lord spoke to me and he said, who did you think I was going to do it because of? (laughs) And I had fallen back into thinking that if I would fast and if I would pray and if I would study the word that God would use me and I was basing my relationship with God on myself instead of on Jesus. And I had to repent and realize that, you know, here I am getting back into this performance mentality. I tell you, it comes at us from every angle. So even if God has spoken to you tonight, and even if you're receiving this, it's not just you hear it one time and you've got it. Now it's over. You are going to have to get this so grounded in you. You're going to have to renew yourself. You're going to have to commit yourself to it. And it's going to take some effort on your part to walk in this. But I'm telling you, God loves you more than you could imagine. He loves you much more than he did when you first got born again, in spite of how sorry you are. Amen. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I've preached the gospel to you tonight and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If there's anybody here tonight who maybe you were trusting in your... We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.